members always present, as many as can be, and if we have visitors today, we're glad and honored to have you and come back anytime you can visit with us and be with us here at McCoynesville. Today we are continuing the sermon series that I began, I believe, back in January on counterfeit gods, counterfeit gods. You know, in this series, we've been studying that anything in life, even good things, can be turned into counterfeit gods or little g-gods, we could say. If they take the place in our lives that belongs only to the one true God, Jehovah God. And the word for that is idolatry. Idolatry. And you know that's a sin that's mentioned or referred to in the Bible more than 1,500 times. There are six of these little g-gods on the screen that we're going to study, and we are studying in this series. One sermon on each one. And as I mentioned to you, we're going to group them into three temples. We're going to put them in the temple of pleasure, and the temple of power, and the temple of love. So far in this series, we've studied the two little g-gods of food and entertainment in the temple of pleasure. In the temple of power, we can find the God of success that we studied and talked about on the first Sunday in April. And in that same temple, temple of power, we can find the little g-god that we're studying today. And that's going to be the God of money. The God of money. Somebody once said, the most sensitive nerve in the human body is the one that runs from our brains to our wallets. And you know, I guess any preacher in the church who's done much of it could tell you that the subject of money is not a popular subject to preach on. It's not a subject that, that may get a lot of likes and positive comments. And I don't know this one today, may not. But you know, the fact is, none of the subjects in this series that we're studying are what you might call feel-good subjects. This series is really about Satan. And some of the ways that Satan can deceive us and work in our lives and use things that we highly value like our food, 
our entertainment, our success, our money, and others to take the place of and lead us away from Jehovah God. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, Paul said to Timothy, Preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And you know that means to preach it when it's popular and preach it when it's not. So let's get started. The world that we live in today, as we all know, runs on money. And for the average person, it seems that we never have enough of it. Especially in these inflationary times today, when the prices of just about everything have shot up like a rocket. Understanding the way money works and having the right perspective on it is not always easy. You know, our relationship with money starts out at a very young age as we learn about the pull and the power of money. story is told about a father, a father who came home to his wife and his little four-year-old daughter after a hard day at work. Father walked in the door and he, he said to his daughter, do you have a kiss for your daddy? She quickly said, no. And the father said, well, I'm hurt by your answer. Your daddy works hard all day to bring home money for us, and this is how you treat me? Come on now. Where's my kiss? The little girl looked her father right in the eye, stuck out her hand, and she said, and where's my money? Another story tells about a young daughter who wanted to help her mother at the bank ATM. So her mother told her which buttons on the ATM to push. When money suddenly popped out of the machine, the little girl squealed and she excitedly said, Look, Mommy, we won. We won. How true it is, how true it is that the little g-god of money wants us to believe that success in life means having lots of it. The god of money wants us to believe that the more money we have, the happier we'll be and the better our lives will be. I can still hear my mother 
telling me many, many times, especially after I had complained about my friends having more of this or that than I did, my mother would say, money doesn't buy you happiness. It may give you some satisfaction, but it doesn't buy happiness. And she was exactly right. The truth is that having a lot of money and material possessions doesn't automatically lead to a person's happiness. Somebody wants to find money as something that may be used as a universal passport to everywhere except heaven. And as a universal provider for everything except happiness. That's a pretty good definition. Way back in 1999, a magazine interviewed the actor Brad Pitt. And in that interview, he, he talked about and he responded to, to people's belief that he had the perfect life. And here's what he said. Once you've got everything, then you're just left with yourself. It doesn't help you sleep any better and you don't wake up any better because of it. The truth is, material wealth never satisfies the soul. So today in this fifth lesson, in this series, I want to challenge all of us with the need to develop and have the right attitude toward money and the material things that money can buy. A certain preacher once said, if a person gets his attitude toward money straight, it can help straighten out almost every other area of his life. In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus makes it plain and clear in that verse that a person cannot serve both God and money. And if we try to serve both, what happens? Well, what happens is that we always end up serving money more than God. The famous writer Mark Twain wrote this. Some men worship rank, some worship heroes, some worship power, some worship God, 
And over these ideals they dispute and cannot unite. But they all worship money. Most of us are blind to the culture of greed that we live in today. And the grip of greed that often has a hold of us. When it comes to money and greed, the little g-god of money is a master at deception. Here is a survey <clears throat> that was taken that revealed some pretty shocking numbers on how far people in our own country would be willing to go for money. <clears throat> in the survey, people were asked this question. What would you do for $10 million? What would you do for $10 million? <clears throat> and here are the results. 25% of people in the survey would abandon their entire family for $10 million. 23% would become prostitutes for a week or more for $10 million. 16% <clears throat> would give up their American citizenship for $10 million. 16% would leave their spouses for $10 million. 10% would withhold testimony in court and let a murderer go free for $10 million. 7% would kill a stranger for $10 million. And 3% in the survey would put their children up for adoption for $10 million. As the old saying goes, everybody has their price. And as that survey indicates, some people in their greed will sell just about anything to gain financial security. But surely, not Christians, not members of the church, not us. Christians wouldn't do anything like that. Oh, no. Christians wouldn't have a, a price for which they would sell their souls to Satan. Would they? Well, the Apostle Paul told Timothy that yes, they would. And in fact, some of them had done exactly that in Paul's day. 
In the text that we studied in the adult class that Brother Jimmy taught this morning, we're covering a lot of the same material, and that's pure coincidence. But in that text, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says in verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And let's look at the rest of that verse, which sometimes we don't pay as much attention to. The rest of that verse says, For which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So I ask you the question, who is the sum who is the sum in that verse? Who's it talking about? Well, Paul is talking there about Christians. Christians in the church in his day who had become greedy. And they had strayed away from the faith. And because of that, they had brought much grief on themselves. Now, if that was happening in the church in Paul's day, guess what? That can happen today. That can happen to us. You know, when we compare, when we compare our financial standing and our handling of money to others, we rarely compare ourselves with those who have less than we have. Because if we did that, as Brother Jimmy mentioned this morning, if we did that, we'd realize just how well off most of us are. But usually, we compare ourselves with those who have more. Right? And so we tend to we tend to justify ourselves. And we may we may say or think to ourselves, well, I don't live as well as him or her or them, and my lifestyle is very modest compared to theirs. So I'm not under the influence of any greed. I'm not greedy. And as a result, most Americans today think of themselves as the middle class. And only 2%, 2% would call themselves upper class. As we already said, the subject of money is not a popular subject to preach on. And people often don't want to hear it. But you know, the inspired writers of the Bible, and especially Jesus, wanted us to hear it. Because they had a whole lot to say to us on the subject of money. Let me give you some facts and figures right here. 
the Bible and money. There are over 450 different Bible passages that deal with handling money. The issue of money is the second most mentioned subject in the Bible. Second only to the subject of, and you might have guessed it, idolatry. Nearly one-sixth of the recorded statements of Jesus in the Gospels concern the issue of money. One-sixth. The Gospels record 38 parables that Jesus told. And out of those 38 parables, 16 of them, almost half of them, deal with the subject of money. So today I want to encourage each one of us to go through the rest of this lesson with the idea that that greed could easily become a problem for any of us. And because Satan hides it so deeply and so successfully, we may not even realize that we've got a problem with it. And the problem as we said this morning in the adult class, the problem isn't money itself because money isn't good or bad in and of itself. Instead, the problem is the love of it. The love of it. As we've already said and read, Paul said, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So today in the rest of the lesson, I want us to take a look at, at two people in the Bible, two people in the Bible who both love money. And they were both serving the little G God of money. Both accounts are in the Gospel of Luke. One account has a happy ending but the other one does not. So the first Bible person that I hope we can learn something from today is a man that the Bible does not name. We don't know his name. But his account is found in Luke chapter 12, and we often refer to him as the rich fool. The rich fool. One day when Jesus was teaching a crowd of listeners, there was a man in the crowd who spoke up. And he said in verse 13 in that chapter that Caleb read, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now it's likely that this man was the younger brother. Because in that time, and according to Levitical law, a family inheritance gave two-thirds of the estate to the older son and just one-third to the younger son. 
So this younger brother may have been wanting a, a larger part of the inheritance. We could say a, a bigger piece of the pie. So in verse 14, Jesus answered him, and he said, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Jesus there was wise enough not to insert himself into a personal conflict where he was not welcome. But you know, as we often say, Jesus was the master teacher. And he used this man's request as a teachable moment to teach everyone there about the danger of serving the little G God of money. So he said to the crowd in verse 15, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Now in those words, Jesus made it clear that life is not about our money and our possessions. And then Jesus told this story, this parable, in verses 16 down through 21. Then he spoke a parable to them saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now that parable describes someone who was worshiping the little g-god of money. This man in the parable is totally focused on himself and his own personal wealth. You know, we can often tell where a person's heart really is and where their focus really is by the words they use and in this case by the words they overuse. Let's do this. Let's do this. Let's count, let's count the personal and possessive pronouns that this man uses in verses 17 through 19 here on the screen that we just read. Let's count them. Kids, you count them. Here's what he said one more time. What shall I do 
since I have no room to store my crops. So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. So did you count them? If you counted, if you counted 13 times, you'd be right. This man mentions or refers to himself 13 times in just three verses. You know, it actually sounds like the God of me, which we're going to get to later in the series. Sounds like the God of me is working on him, besides the God of money. We see no acknowledgement there from this man that what he has actually came from God. There's no thought of that. And there's never a thought in this man's mind that, that he could share what he had with others and maybe help others in some way. You see, the key to keeping money in its rightful place, everybody get this, the key is to remember that it all belongs to God. It all belongs to God. Whatever we have, much or little, is on loan from God. Psalms 24 verse 1 says it plainly, The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Think about how the man in the parable was looking to money he was looking to his money and wealth to do for him the very things that God should be doing for us. Which is what we often look to idols to do. Let's look at three examples of that in this parable. Let's look at three mistakes the rich fool made. First of all, this man looked to money as the source of his security. He said to himself that he had plenty of good things stored up for many years. Do we try, do we try to accumulate in our lives enough where we can feel like we're all set and we'll have no financial worries ever again. If we look to money as a security, then it becomes a little g-god. It becomes an idol. Secondly, 
This man looked to money as the source of his happiness. He thought that all that he had accumulated would allow him to eat, drink, and be merry, be happy. You see, his happiness didn't come from pleasing God. His happiness didn't come from having a right relationship with God and with others. But he thought it came from his money. And what he thought his money and his wealth could do for who? For him. It was all about him. Thirdly, this man looked to money for the source of his importance. His focus, as we've already seen, was totally, totally on himself and how much he had accomplished, how much he had. Others would certainly respect him and envy him and look up to him because of his wealth and how big his barns were. You see, the God of money wants us to believe that our importance comes from our earthly wealth. Or we might say it this way. The little G-God of money wants us to believe that our self-worth is a product of our net worth. The man in this parable of Jesus had put his trust in his money and his possessions. And his plan was, it seems, to retire early and sit back, take it easy, eat, drink, be merry. But as we read, that's not what happened. That's not what happened. God called him a fool and he took his life from him that very night. He died that very night. You see, that man learned the hard way about the folly of allowing the little g-god of money to cause him to store up treasure for himself, but not be a rich toward Jehovah God. The second person, the other person in the Bible that I hope we can learn something from this morning is a man named Zacchaeus. Most of us, even the kids, are, are familiar with the account of Zacchaeus that's told in Luke chapter 19. Luke 19. Zacchaeus, as you probably remember, was a chief tax collector. And Zacchaeus lived in the city of Jericho. And just like a lot of people today, in our day, don't like people who work for the IRS, well, people in that time, in that day, didn't like the tax collectors that worked for the Roman government. Zacchaeus was a Jew 
who had sold himself out to the Romans. He was working with and for the Roman government. And so he was shunned and he was hated by the Jewish people around him. So why would anybody take a job as a tax collector? What would entice a man like Zacchaeus to to betray his own people and live as an outcast among his own people? Well, you know the answer. The answer is one little word, money. Because of their dishonesty, tax collectors in that time were some of the wealthiest people. And they were also among the most hated. And they were listed among people that were thought of as the sinners, as in Luke 19, 7 there on the screen. So when Zacchaeus heard that Jesus was passing through Jericho, he did a very unusual thing. He climbed up a sycamore tree in town to be able to get a a better look at Jesus as he passed by. Now, we could say that Zacchaeus was vertically challenged and he couldn't see Jesus because of the, the crowd of people along the street. And no one in the crowd was about to allow Zacchaeus, the hated tax collector, to come to the front of the crowd and stand beside them. So he got shuffled to the back. So Zacchaeus ran ahead of Jesus and he climbed up a sycamore tree to be able to see him as he passed by. We visited Jericho on the Holy Land trip. And today in the city of Jericho there is a very old ancient sycamore tree along the street. Now there's no proof there's no proof no evidence that it's the actual tree that Zacchaeus climbed. But you know it's easy to stand there and visualize that happening. In the culture of that time, where honor and dignity were highly prized and valued, no self-respecting man would ever climb a tree to see anything or anybody. That would draw a lot of mockery and ridicule. But you know Zacchaeus' willingness to climb a tree shows his desperation. Zacchaeus had more money than he could probably ever spend. But he knew that something important was missing from his life. And maybe, just maybe, Jesus offered what he needed. So to the great surprise of everyone there, including Zacchaeus himself, As Jesus passed by the sycamore tree, he called Zacchaeus by name. 
and he invited himself to visit with Zacchaeus in his home. Luke 19 verse 5 says, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste. Come down, for for today I must stay at your house. When Zacchaeus saw that Jesus had, had chosen him, the most hated person in the crowd, for a personal relationship and a visit, his whole spiritual understanding began to change. Zacchaeus wanted to follow Jesus. But he realized that if he was going to do that, that his relationship with money was a problem. And that had to change. So there in his home, in front of Jesus and maybe other guests, Zacchaeus made this declaration in verse 8 of that chapter. He said this, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. So how's that? How's that for breaking the chains that the little G-God of money had had on Zacchaeus for so long? He promised to give away 50% of his wealth to the poor. 50%. He also promised to repay people for the ways he had cheated them as a tax collector. He knew how much he had amassed over the years by cheating people. Collecting more than was due and pocketing the rest. That happens sometimes today. So can you imagine the long line of people that would be waiting to get paid back? And amazingly, he wasn't going to repay them penny for penny, but he was going to pay them back four times more than what he had taken from them. So what brought about this amazing transformation? When Jesus came into Zacchaeus' life, Zacchaeus realized that although he was financially rich, he was spiritually poor, spiritually bankrupt. But by grace, God was willing to give him spiritual riches. And in that moment, we could say that Zacchaeus kicked out the God of money from the throne of his life. And he replaced it with Jesus. What Zacchaeus did and what Jesus did in Zacchaeus' life, he can do for each one of us today. God can help us not to serve the little G-God of money. But like Zacchaeus, we have to initiate that change.
We don't have to end up like the rich fool in Luke 12. But like Zacchaeus in Luke 19, we can wake up to a wrong relationship with money before it's too late. And to help us do that, let's ask ourselves a few questions for our self-examination. Here's question number one. How often do you compare what you have and what you make to others? Our world today and the little g-god of money encourage us to do that. To measure our life and our value by our money and our possessions. But we ought to resist that temptation. Remember that's really a temptation from Satan. And as we already read in Luke 12, 15, Jesus reminds us that a person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. Question number two. How much anxiety, how much anxiety do finances add to your life? You know, we all may face at some point, sometime, financial challenges. But how do we try to face them? Do worry and sleepless nights take over? Do we try to trust in our efforts alone to work out problems? Or do we pray about it and look to God for help? Question number three. To what degree are your dreams and your goals driven by money? If you're making a career change right now, or young people, if you're making a career choice right now, how big a factor, how big a factor is money? Is it right up there at the top of your list? For a lot of people it is. What would you do if you suddenly came into a lot of money? What would you do? You know there are people today who play the lottery in hopes of exactly that happening. Now, Christians should not be playing the lottery because that's gambling. And gambling is an act of covetousness. It's the desire to gain money that belongs to someone else through a small investment of our own. And we've already seen today what Jesus said about covetousness in the account of the rich fool in Luke 12, there on the screen. In Ephesians 5, verse 5 on the screen, the Apostle Paul says that a covetous person is guilty of idolatry and has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Proverbs 10, verse 2 
has a good statement that applies to gambling. And the money that's gained by gambling. And this may be a verse, a passage that maybe you've never noticed. Here it is. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. But what if you had some other sudden increase in your wealth? People sometimes say they married into money. Or they get a large inheritance. How might you feel differently about yourself if you had more money? And if you had more money, would you be likely to spend most or all of it on yourself or your own family? And question number four, what is your attitude toward giving? You know, the best way to keep money from controlling us is to be willing to share it and give it away. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says this concerning our giving. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. Look at it. For God loves a cheerful giver. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, on the screen, we're commanded as Christians to give to the work of the church every Sunday, every first day of the week. As we've been prospered, and that should be something that we plan ahead for and budget for. But are we regularly and truly doing that? And are we giving with the right attitude? Let me close today with a true story from history. <clears throat> The very first person in American history to become a billionaire was a man who knew how to set goals and follow through. At the age of 23, he had become a millionaire. And by the age of 50, he was a billionaire. Every decision, every attitude, every relationship was made to create and increase his own personal power and wealth. But three years later, at the age of 53, he became sick, physically ill. His entire body became racked with pain. He was in continual agony. 24 hours a day. The world's only billionaire could buy anything he wanted 
but he could only eat and digest milk and crackers. A friend wrote this. He could not sleep, would not smile. Nothing in life meant anything to him. His personal, highly skilled, and highly paid doctors predicted that he would die within a year. That year passed by agonizingly slow. As he approached death, he woke up one morning with a the vague remembrance of a dream he had the night before. He could barely remember the dream, but he knew it had something to do with not being able to take any of his wealth and his success with him into the next life. This man who could control the entire business world with a snap of his fingers, this man suddenly realized that he was not in control of his own life. And so he was left with a choice. He called in all of his attorneys, his accountants, his business managers, and he announced to them that he wanted to channel all of his assets to hospitals and medical research. And on that day, John D. Rockefeller established his foundation. That decision eventually led to the discovery of penicillin, and cures for strains of malaria, tuberculosis, and diphtheria. The list of discoveries resulting from that decision is enormous. But maybe the most amazing part of Rockefeller's story is that the moment he began to give back, the moment he began to give back a part of all that he had earned, his body's chemistry was changed so much that he began to get better. It had looked as if he would die at age 53. John D. Rockefeller lived to be 98 years old. You see, God knows us. He created us. He made us to be giving, loving creatures. And that's why he gave us the example of what it means to give things away. God is the creator of the universe. And as we said today, everything belongs to him. And yet, he loved us so much that he gave 
he gave his only begotten son to die on the cross so that we might have eternal life with him. But we can't have that eternal life if we don't first come to Christ in obedience. Believing that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, and turning away from our sins in repentance and confessing the name of Christ and making him the Lord of our lives and then being immersed in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. And then finally living anew and a faithful, a faithful life in Christ. If you need to respond to the invitation in any way this morning, to confess sin in a public way or to ask for the prayers of the church or to obey the gospel, Christ invites you to come today. As together we stand and sing.